south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 312, covering the week of June 6th through June 10th, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. We now have a new button on the YouTube page. You can click on the Super Thanks button under the videos if you like any of the videos, and you can donate to the Institute that way. Of course, we do have a great video up. We just put it up last week. Jefferson Davis, American Statesman. These are part of our series, Abbeville U videos, six to ten minute videos designed to bring a interesting, an interesting topic to you or a hard-hitting subject in a very short time frame. So go on out there and check those out. The YouTube channel is great because you also get those and our lectures, our podcast, all kinds of great stuff on the YouTube channel. You can also get our mobile app. Just go to your app store, wherever you get your apps, and look for Abbeville Institute. Download it free of charge, or you can get it off the website too. So it's another great way to keep in touch with the Institute. Also go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E institute.org. Give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. It's a great book, free of charge to you, just for giving us that email address, and that's how we keep in contact with you. You can support the Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org, clicking on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies our way. Your donation is tax deductible to the full extent of the law, so please consider doing that. It keeps all of these things going. Also, be on the lookout for our next webinar, which is coming at the end of the month. It's going to be a great webinar. I'll talk about that in a minute because the person that we're going to feature on that webinar has an article this week. So you want to be looking out for that. Those are a lot of fun. And if you've missed any of our webinars, go to abbevilleacademy.org, abbevilleacademy.org. You can uh, purchase any of the old webinars, $15 per webinar. We have to charge a little more because of the administrative costs. But uh, it is a, a great resource. We have over a dozen of these webinars available for purchase, so abbevilleacademy.org. All right, well, let's talk about, oh, by the way, share the podcast around on social media. We're not on Facebook, but you can. Share our articles around social media. We're not on Facebook, but you can share them there. And, of course, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about the material for the week. Very heavy focus on the war, or at least Lincoln, and uh, the remembrance of the war. Now, one of the more important topics that I see a lot is this discussion of the Confederate Constitution. And the Confederate Constitution is really a document that people don't know much about. And I, and I say that even scholars who study it don't really understand it. And what do I say? What do I mean by when I say they don't understand it? One of the things you'll see running around is that the Confederate Constitution made it illegal for slavery to be abolished in the Confederacy. Now, this is a big claim, and oftentimes they cite uh, a particular article and clause in the Constitution that makes it seem that way, right? Because the, the Constitution is very explicit, and it says that uh, Negro slavery shall never be abolished. Now, I'm paraphrasing here. But you have to understand that the Confederate constitutional cr- tradition is born out of the same constitutional cr- tradition that established the U.S. Constitution. Now, the piece that we ran on Monday is by Marshall DeRosa. Marshall DeRosa is the leading scholar, in my opinion, on the Confederate Constitution in the United States. He wrote the only full-length monograph on the subject back in the early 90s. It was published by University of Kansas Press. And um, 
he gave a speech, a talk, in 2003 at our first summer school. By the way, our summer school is coming up in July. It's sold out, but be on the lookout for videos and other things from that once we finish it up. But we have uh, Marshall DeRosa talking about the Confederate Constitution 20 years ago now almost. And he brings up another a number of things that made the Confederate Constitution different from the U.S. Constitution. And of course, the very fact that the, that the uh, members of the Confederate Constitutional Convention use the word Negro slavery in it is one of those areas where it's different from the U.S. Constitution, no question about it. They use the word Negro and they use the word slavery, whereas the U.S. Constitution didn't use those things. So people often point to this and say, see, here it is. This is a slaveholding republic. And I don't think anyone in the Confederacy, at least in the first seven states, would deny that slavery was an important part of their political economy. And I don't think anyone would deny in that particular group of people that slavery was an important part, or at least uh, um, an integral part of their society. As the Genoveses have pointed out in the mind of the master class, this was a slaveholding republic. A slaveholding federal republic, by the way. But on the other hand, the Confederacy and the members of the convention that formed the document were also aware that there might be other states that would join the Confederacy that were not as ardent as, say, Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina on the, uh, on the perpetuation of the institution. And so they had to appeal to these other states. So what did they do? Well, they abolished the international slave trade. Now, there was a proposal put forward in the Confederate Constitutional Convention to establish the international slave trade. It was rejected. So the Confederacy, just like the United States government, made the international slave trade illegal. Didn't mean that some people didn't want it. They did. We know that there was some talk about reviving it. In the, uh, in the U.S. Constitution, or at least uh, you know, in the U.S. Congress, just before the war. So there were those in the Confederacy that certainly talked about it, but it was rejected. And so uh, this was one thing that the Confederate Congress or Constitution, Congress could not do. They could not revive the international slave trade constitutionally. The other part of this that people miss is the idea of reserved powers. And so... The Confederate Constitution is very clear that the Confederacy, the Confederate government, cannot abolish slavery. Uh, it's, in, it's in their Constitution. However, the U.S. Constitution is also clear on this, too. Now, it doesn't use those express terms. But just about everyone in the United States realized that the United States Congress had no power to abolish slavery in the states because it didn't grant that power. It was not enumerated power. In Article 1, Section 8. It wasn't there. In fact, this is what Southerners would often argue was the problem with U.S. legislation when it came to the territories. The Dred Scott decision used the Fifth Amendment and substantive due process to say that slavery could not be, uh, slavery could not be abolished in the territories because that was denying Southerners their property according to the Fifth Amendment. But there's also an argument to be made that there's no provision in the Constitution, no, no article, no clause, that allowed the Congress to touch the issue of slavery whatsoever except for the international slave trade. And that was expressly there. Or the Fugitive Slave Clause, which, by the way, Lincoln in the 1850s was very clear he would support. He would defend the Fugitive Slave Clause. And Lincoln, as a lawyer, did. He, he defended slave owners. 
not slaves. He defended slave owners. In fact, as we've had a, a, a webinar, a Zoom webinar on Lincoln, he, he sold slaves. He could have freed slaves. He could have bought them uh, from the estate, his wife's estate, and then freed them. But no, he sold them for profit. So Lincoln wasn't necessarily against uh, slave owners, so to speak. He didn't think that slavery should be extended. And so this was the real debate. What about power and what kind of, what kind of power did the government have? And why did the Republican Party generally want slavery to be stopped? Well, I mean, Lincoln said it too. He wanted this territory for free white labor. He said it in 1854. This is what he wanted. And this is what the Republican Party generally wanted. That same exact thing. They didn't want any competition from black Americans in that territory. So we all know that in the United States Constitution... The central authority could not abolish slavery, and the states could. In the Confederate Constitution, the exact same situation is there. The central authority could not abolish slavery, but the states could. It's very clear. The states aren't denied the authority to abolish slavery at all. And this was designed for states like Virginia or Maryland or Missouri or Kentucky or maybe even a state like Lincoln's Illinois, or maybe Ohio, or some state like that, that might want to join the Confederacy that was not a slave state. Because uh, those states could join the Confederacy. They could not have slavery because it's not mandated to have slavery. Now, the central authority couldn't do it. But then there's the interesting part later in the war where Jefferson Davis promises to abolish slavery in return for recognition by the British or the French. And this is the Duncan Kenner mission, which is well documented. Duncan Kenner was sent to Europe and told, in 1864, and told, tell the crown, tell the British crown, if they will just intercede on our behalf, if they will recognize the Confederacy and essentially send their navy to break the blockade, we will abolish slavery. You see, to Davis and some other Southerners, not all. I mean, when Kenner got to Europe, there was a lot of resistance to Kenner. But to Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and some other Southerners, independence was more important than anything. And I think you could say this was the case for many of the leadership in the army. Independence was more important than anything else. Now, some people, of course, when this was brought up, say, well, what are we really fighting for? We know that there were Southerners who were very pro-slavery and thought this was a way to protect slavery, to secede from the Union. We know that was the case. We also know that the average Confederate soldier was not fighting to free slave or not fighting to defend slavery, or the average Union soldier was not fighting to free slaves. We know that uh, that this was not the aim of the Union at the beginning of the war to free slaves. We know that at the beginning of the war, the Confederate aim was not to uh, not to fight for slavery. They were fighting for independence. So all of those things put together, right? is one of the most important parts of the Confederate Constitution, one of the most important arguments made against it. It's a pro-slavery document. Well, yes and no, because it could have allowed, I mean, states could have abolished slavery if they would have liked. So there is really no difference. And I remember um, I had a discussion on, on social media with a very prominent establishment historian on this, and she didn't, she admitted that the Confederate Constitution and the U.S. Constitution were the same in this, even though she runs around saying that the Confederate Constitution made slavery permanent. But she admitted that it's not the case. You see, there is no difference. On, on these type of issues, there is no difference. The states could still do what they wanted in the Confederacy. 
the central authority had limitations on his power that the central authority had in the United States government as well. I mean, that's that's what we don't that's what people don't get. They don't understand reserve powers. They don't understand the point of a written constitution. They don't understand how the similarities there between the U.S. Constitution and the Confederate Constitution on these issues, with the exception of language, they're the same. So there are some differences, of course, in the two documents. You know, president is, is one. The president gets a single six-year term in the Confederate Constitution, whereas in the U.S. Constitution, they, at, in 1861, the president got a four-year term. And, of course, they could be elected in perpetuity, right? You could have a president serve for 16 to 20 years, 20, 24 years, however long the president wanted to serve. Uh, we know that Washington established a two-term precedent, but we didn't have a constitutional amendment to do that until uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the mid-20th century. So presidents could serve as long as they wanted, but the, in the Confederacy, it was a single six-year term for the, for the presidency. And so Jefferson Davis elected in 1861. This is where this other famous historian didn't know that Jefferson Davis was actually elected. Not just provisional Congress, but there was an election, and Davis was elected. This is Stephanie McCurry, by the way, who I'm talking about. Um, Jefferson Davis was elected, and uh, he served. He would have served one term had the war ended in favor of the Confederacy. He would have been out after that. So uh, there's there's a a theory running around from some of these nincompoops on the left that somehow the Confederacy was shading into monarchy during the war, um, and that there was uh, you know extreme centralization taking place. In some cases, there was a lot of resistance from the states. They thought that the central authority was being too heavy-handed that they were using confiscatory policies and other things uh, to abuse the states. And so you certainly had a reaction to that. But I think this is just complete garbage when people say these things. They don't really understand uh, what was going on at, at that time. And we could say the same thing about the U.S. government, of course. In a war period, this is why, this is why war should always be resisted at all costs. Because wars do lead to centralization. Wars lead to more government activity. Wars lead to unconstitutional legislation. It happens all the time. It's happened in the 20th century. World War I and World War II destroyed the United States Constitution. And they expanded the powers of the presidency exponentially. And of course, Congress was part of it. But that's, those two events did so much to bring about the monstrosity in Washington, D.C. today. So this discussion by uh, Marshall DeRosa, if you really want to get into the Confederate Constitution, he basically in this, in this talk summarizes his book and some of the major findings of his book, The Confederate Constitution of 1861, uh, University of Missouri Press. I'm sorry, I think I said Kansas Press. It's University of Missouri Press. Um, but again, I think he published that book in 1991 or 1992. It's been you know, nearly 30 years since that book was published. It's still the best Still the only full-length monograph on the subject. It's really good, and you should go get it. He's now working on a book on uh, Confederate case law, which is a, a needed book because, I mean, he found some stuff in that. And he, he did some talks at last year's summer school on this particular topic. But uh, he found some things out there that would just, it just blows apart the narrative that uh, Southerners didn't think that uh, slaves were human beings, that they had any rights. I mean, it blows that apart. What's interesting about that, too, is Lincoln actually brought up that he knew Southerners believed slaves were human beings because of the way that they they talked about them, right? So 
um, this this whole thing, so many layers to all of this. Right? And at the end of the day, what was happening in the 1850s and the 40s, particularly the 40s and the 50s, because that's when things really got hot. What was happening in that particular time period? But even going back to 1820 and the Missouri Compromise, the North had figured out that they could split this alliance between the West and the South over the issue of slavery, and they wanted to break that alliance because they thought they were going to be a permanent political minority if the West and the South remained aligned because they were agricultural. They had agricultural interests, and the North had commercial interests, later industrial interests, and banking interests. And So they figured out if they can drive a wedge between the two, it would work to their favor. And one of the things that when you look at the Missouri Compromise that people miss about that is that Congress was trying to dictate to a state, Missouri, on what it could do with the institution of slavery. And James Monroe, who was president at the time, said he would not sign any bill that told Missouri what it could do as a state. Missouri had to be admitted under the Constitution that they created. Right? So, the whole Louisiana Purchase was open to slavery from 1803 until 1820. You could have gone anywhere in the Purchase with slaves if you wanted to. And it shows that the, uh, that the United States Congress at that point wasn't too concerned about this. In fact, they thought it, was, it wasn't really their area to legislate. And it wasn't until Missouri, and you started seeing the establishment of states, and Northerners, the old Federalists, had figured out that, hey, if we use this issue, we can, we can gain power back because we've got the old Northwest, which, through the Confederation Congress, said that these, this territory is closed to slavery. However, states were another matter, and even Illinois, this is something that was brought up in the 1850s as well with Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. Even Illinois, um, there was some talk in 1818 about Illinois coming in as a slave state. It did have slaves in it, a very few number. I think it had something like 60, or I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was a small number. But it had slavery in it, now, they called it indentured servitude, but it was slavery. I mean, that's just, that's what it is, right? It's slavery. And so there was some discussion about, about Illinois becoming a slave state. And Stephen Douglas made a point to say that, well, Illinois was a slave state when it was founded because it had slaves in it. And it didn't abolish it. It was a gradual emancipation process. So Illinois came into the Union ostensibly as a mild slave state. So we know that states could do this, even in the old Northwest. In fact, this is what I mean. When the states came in on equal footing, they could do this. So these are all big issues, right? Huge issues with the sectional conflict, things that are complex that historians don't really like to get into because they want to deal in slogans and platitudes and simple black and white, but it's never that. There's so much going on here. And then, of course, you've got Lincoln. And we had a great piece by Tom DiLorenzo on Tuesday. He actually published this um, at lewrockwell.com originally. But the title is, The Last Americans to Believe in the Voluntary Union of the States. And he gets into the destruction of South Carolina during the war. Uh, in a really good book by Karen Stokes. Um, but one of the things that is often discussed was often discussed by the South for years, was this period at the end of the war of plundering and total war on the civilian population 
of the South, not just in South Carolina, but also Georgia and Alabama. Alabama's often left out of this, but you know, North Alabama, the Huntsville area and down through there, uh, the Union Army led by uh, James Harrison Wilson and Emory Upton really did a number on North Alabama. And uh, they marched through North Alabama and then came down through what's now Phoenix City, Alabama, into Columbus, Georgia. They were coming on the backside of Georgia while Sherman is marching from, uh, from the northern part of Georgia through the state, through Atlanta, and then onto the sea to Savannah. So you had a double-pronged assault going into Georgia. And they were doing the exact same thing. Look, uh, Columbus, Georgia was burned. People don't realize that, but Columbus, Georgia, which was a major industrial center, even into April of 1865, which was when it was burned, was burned to the ground by the Union Army. They, uh, they confiscated the cotton. There was a tremendous amount of cotton in a warehouse along the Chattahoochee River. They confiscated it all, and they burned it. And of course, one of the stories in that particular process, one of the Union supporters in the city was a man named Mott. His last name was Mott. He had been a mayor of Columbus at one time. And he allowed the Union Army to use his house as a headquarters. Um, and it, he had slaves. He was a slave owner. And when the Union Army left, they freed his slaves. And Mott was very upset about this. And he said, you know, I supported you. This was not about slavery. I supported you. I supported the Union. Why are you freeing my slaves? And so this is the, this is the disconnect. That, I mean, it shows you, even into 1865... There were people that understood the war not to be about slavery. The war was about stopping secession and staying in the Union. And of course, the war aim with the Emancipation Proclamation became something a little different, though that was Lincoln. We know Lincoln was willing to allow slavery to continue. And he said it in January of 1865, maybe to 1890. Maybe the southern states could come back in and vote down slavery because they could vote down the amendment. I mean, so there was a lot going on here, a lot of moving pieces at all times. But we know that, of course, South Carolina, and this is what DiLorenzo gets into here, South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama were fearfully pl uh, plundered. Same thing with Mississippi, right, as the Union Army moved through there and Grant and, and uh, destroying Vicksburg. This is why we had a piece years ago why People in Vicksburg did not celebrate 4th of July for generations generation because that was the day that Vicksburg fell. And you have to understand that the Union gunboats were sitting out in the, on the Mississippi just shelling the, shelling the city. I mean, people were living in, in caves to try to avoid getting killed. And when you would go out and you'd try to simply wash your clothes or something and slaves were killed, uh, you know, of course... Uh, other uh, other white, white Southerners were killed. You would go out and wash your clothes or cook something, and a dang shell would come in and blow you up, and it happened. You see this. This is the thing. There's, um, I used to show a video in my, in my, uh, for my college students on World War II, and you had uh, Poles out during World War II trying to pick potatoes while the Germans are flying overhead during the Blitzkrieg in 39, bombing, right? And so you would have people killed or they do machine gun strikes and wipe out civilians in 1939. And this is tragic, no doubt about it. I mean, these people are simply trying to survive. you got little kids out picking potatoes. They're trying to survive and they have to go into hiding while the Germans fly overhead. What's the difference in that in, in Vicksburg in, in, uh, in the war in, 18, you know, 18, uh, in the 1860s 
when the Union Army set out there and lobbed shells into Vicksburg onto a civilian population, people simply trying to live. What's the difference? There is no difference, except one are a group of Americans and one are foreigners. But of course, these group of Americans, many of them, um, you know, had slaves. So that makes them subhuman or something else. But of course, slaves are even being killed in this, right? So we have this very strange perspective on these things. They're both tragic situations. It doesn't matter which one you're talking about. Killing civilians for fun, which is essentially what it was. Um, I mean, this is just despicable stuff. So who are, as Clyde Wilson pointed out years ago on the website, who are the real Nazis? Is it the South or is it the North who were doing things that were quite Nazi-like during the war? Uh, but you know, uh, this is an important thing to get, and so DiLorenzo's piece brings that out. And uh, Boyd Cathy's piece on, uh, on Thursday, Remembering Gods and Generals, it's a nice look back at a seminal film and a lot of people don't like it because you know it's lost cause. It's um, you know it's lost cause propaganda. But the Ron Maxwell film is so good. He also did a very good film entitled Copperhead. If you haven't seen that one, uh, it came out long after Gods and Generals. He was supposed to be a three a, a trilogy, right? For these, and the, the last full measure was supposed to be the last film. And of course, it was rejected because so much uh, vitriol was was hurled at this particular film as being you know too. Uh, uh, too, uh, too lost cause, too pro-Confederate. And much of the film is focused on Stonewall Jackson, of course. And there are some really moving points in this film. And there is a part um, where Jackson gives his farewell address to his men, uh, to, his, to his first brigade. And if you don't tear up a little bit, uh, if you don't tear up when you, when you hear that, I don't know who you are. It's 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 just as good as say uh, you know if you've watched Braveheart and and William Wallace firing up his men before that battle. It's just as good. There's no difference. Um, if you can't watch that, whether you're a, a pro Union or pro Confederate, it doesn't matter. Whatever you are, you know, from the North, from the South. If you can't see that and think, wow, that's um, that's an amazing speech. I don't, I don't get it. Uh, but there's so much in this film, and it's so good. And, of course, um, when you watch it, you know, Gettysburg is okay. Gods and Generals was just a superior film. Uh, and um, it's, it's a long film, as he brings up. You know, it's nearly four hours long. Uh, but you should watch it if you've never seen it before. Um, Boyd likes Robert Duvall's portrayal of Robert E. Lee, whereas Clyde Wilson doesn't. He thinks Robert Duvall was the wrong guy for it. He's too old. Uh, Lee was... Was uh, was different than that, but um, certainly this is a very good, uh, very good essay looking back at gods and generals over all these years, almost twenty years now that it's been. Uh, it was released on in February two thousand and three. Um, so I like this little piece, and again, Boyd is such a you know important part of the institute and in writing things like this for us. And then we have a piece setting Lincoln straight, published on Friday by Rado Barr, and it. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting piece, and it gets into the the border states, the border slave states, and there are unionists in the border slave states. This is uh, an, a very interesting part of the war. Daniel Cross wrote a book entitled "Reluctant Confederates," and he gets into these border slave states: North Carolina, Virginia, 
and how they really didn't want to side with the Confederacy at all. And you had Unionists in these states, still after the war, who were insisting that the war was not about slavery, that the war was, in the Emancipation Proclamation, distorted all of this. They, they were insisting that their war was to save the Union. Nicole Hannah-Jones got into a lot of trouble uh, a couple of weeks back. She's, of course, the lead uh, author of the 1619 Project for saying that the war was about the Union. All the righteous cause mythologists, left and right, went ballistic over this. But you go back and you look at it, and this is exactly what Lincoln said, and this is what other people in the North were saying, and other Unionists were saying. This war was about saving the Union. It's what Randolph Mott was saying here in in Columbus, Georgia. Well, wait, uh, the war is about the Union, not slavery. What are you doing? It's about saving the Union. I am against the secession, but I mean, nothing else should change. Uh, that was something that people made clear as they were marching off to war. And for a lot of Union soldiers, as, uh, as uh, Lincoln's Mercenaries points out, you know, William Marvel's book, Lincoln's Mercenaries, for a lot of Union soldiers, it was about three hots and a cot, right? Let's get, let's get some money. Let's get some meals, and we can, we can make a little money and march around. And uh, That's what the war is really about. It's not about any kind of ideological crusade or anything else. It's about getting a paycheck and uh, some food for, for them. So I really enjoyed uh, you know this piece as well. You know, Rod Albar did a great job with that. And then the last piece for the week is The Intruder. This is by Brandon Meeks. Brandon Meeks is going to be our featured guest for our next webinar. And he's going to talk about storytelling. And if you haven't read any Brandon Meeks pieces on the website, you need to read them. This is The Intruder. It's a funny little story. And um, now some people have... have um, emailed us and saying they don't like his language. He doesn't use rough language in his pieces, but he's, um, he's a young guy, and he'll, he'll use some terms at times. He'll twist some, some words, and he'll use some indelicate things here and there. Um, but nothing that's just too excessive. I mean, you see worse on television and other things. Uh, you'll see worse in some modern literature. Um, these, these, these stories are so good, and you need to read them. They're funny. And this brings out this art of storytelling in the South. It's one of the things the South has always been good at. Um, you know, the comedy, storytelling. And so we're going to talk about that in our next webinar. It'll be at the end of the month. So if, if you're on the email list, make keep on the lookout for that because uh, that's how we let you know these things are happening. So this piece by Brandon Meeks, just wrapping up the week, uh, The Intruder, just very, very funny, and you should read it. So... Hope you enjoyed this Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day.